0: Random things. First of all, hiking, which is something I kind of like to do. I don't do it a lot because it doesn't have a lot of adrenaline involved, but going for a hike is a lot of fun. This is Glacier National Park a couple years ago. Um, I've been accused of trying to turn everything into a competition, that there's always got to be, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing as a race. Or there should be a prize at the end of something. There's always got to be a prize. And for me, hiking isn't all that exciting to do, but when you get up to the top of something, that's pretty cool. It's like a trophy you get. Or if you find a lake out in the middle of nowhere that you have to get a long ways into, that's kind of worth it. It's like the star that you get for pushing yourself on a hike. And it's, um, Glacier National Park's kind of uniquely American kind of thing. It's a national park that... Teddy Roosevelt and his wisdom set aside these tracts of land that we could go and enjoy, and they nat- they 're just natural um, it 's a wonderful thing there 's an amazing road to drive, which is a little more adrenaline involved and it 's a cool place and there 's this this prize and hiking is a for me um, is actually kind of a spiritual thing to do, or at least I find a lot of interesting things I learn as i 'm hiking. The other thing i'd like to talk about this morning is a person, and I would consider I don't know about the most authentic American, but at least he'd certainly be in the running, and that's this man, which you should recognize if you had a history class from certain teachers. um, I would guarantee you would recognize it. Um, This is Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass was maybe born in 1818. We really don't know. He never knew But he died in the late 1800s at the age of 77. And in his time, Frederick Douglass was an author. He was a pastor of a couple different churches. He was a newspaper man. He was a social reformer. He was a leading advocate of a woman's right to vote before that was even a movement. He was a leading advocate for Native Americans' rights at a time when we were still conquering uh, Native American territory. He was an abolitionist, meaning he was one of the people against slavery. And he was um, a successful politician, ran and was achieved several offices. He was probably most noted or his most notable quality was an orator. He was a speaker of phenomenal character at a time when people would speak for hours. Uh, Church services were about three times longer than they were. And if you went to hear a politician speak, you'd be there for a long, long time. And it was all... I mean, he could just do that, and he would rivet people. People were just fascinated to listen to him. He had this amazing voice, they said. But he's an incredibly self-made man, and I think he's one of the most authentic Americans you're ever going to find. And the reason is this. He was born as a slave in early 1800s. He lived his life for the first 20 years as a slave, literally in chains, and he died as a highly exalted, highly honored Uh, well-regarded throughout history, uh, statesman, politician, and orator. His life went from enslaved to exalted. And that is going to be a theme for today that we're going to follow, to go from chains to a crown and hiking. Our text for today to take a look at, to kind of look at this stuff, will be in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to go from uh, we're going to wrap up chapter three today, verses 22 to 29. So let me throw that up there, and uh, you can listen along or read along with me. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. For you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word and uh, take a close look at it today, we pray as we do every Sunday that, Father, the deficiencies of my studies or my words would not be uh, distracting and that your Holy Spirit in each one of us would overcome those deficiencies and that the true message that you have for us from uh, the Apostle Paul through this chapter would just be implanted in our hearts, and that, Lord, you would use it uh, not just uh, for us to be wiser, but, Lord, we would be closer to you and to one another through this time of study. Uh, We give you all the praise this morning. We thank you for the ministry of your Son, Christ Jesus, and in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. So, remember, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a bunch of churches in Galatia, and the churches in Galatia were, if you want to call it backsliding, backsliding. Uh, they were going from true Christianity and they were adding in old Jewish customs of uh, circumcision for your justification and the requirements of the law for your sanctification. And as we do, I continue to hammer this home, our salvation, uh, we tend to say saved, but really there's three parts to that. And there are three tenses. There's the past tense. When you were justified, you're saved from the very Penalty of sin. Sin convicted you, Jesus Christ saved you. When you placed your faith in Him, you were justified. And then the present tense is our, our life right now that the book of Galatians is very much about. And it's the sanctification or being sanctified, our daily salvation from the power of sin. And then we look forward to in the future where we'll be glorified. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. In the future. So, past tense, present tense, future tense. And Galatians, the book of, is mostly about present tense, but it's a little bit also about the past, being justified, because that's an important part of how we live, is knowing how we were justified. And you'll see that as we run through this. And there's a lot of contrasts in Galatians. And he spends the Apostle Paul, the author, a lot of time comparing and contrasting the law with the faith or the flesh with the spirit, or what God does in us versus what we do for ourselves. And self-righteousness is usually not considered a good quality in a person. And in fact, in Christianity, it's not either. It's about being God-righteous, about God doing something in us, and God declaring us to be clean because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so this appears all through Galatians. It's one of the primary themes is comparing why the law is insufficient, and why faith is all that you need. Last week, we discussed covenants a lot. And really, the only thing that I need you to keep in mind when we talk about covenants is that there are two types. And we talked about there's the promise from Abraham, which is in faith, and it's unconditional, and it's for everybody. And it's if you believe, you are saved. Belief equals salvation. And then there was the Mosaic covenant, which is not unconditional. It's very conditional. If you do this, this will happen. If you do that, something else will happen. If you obey the law, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be disciplined. And that was a conditional covenant given to Israel, the nation of, the the race of the Jewish race. And it's about, there are different purposes. The promise is for all of us. It's definitely implicit on us. But the, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was given for a time and a place, and it had a lot more to do with sanctification and staying in the land, and it, it's for the nation of Israel. And the Galatians were kind of confusing the two, and they were mixing them together, and the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to them saying, knock it off, that, that's bad, and he was personally very affected by that. And so as we contrast law, faith, and these two covenants, We're kind of left with the question for today is a lot about sanctification. And it's, if you're taking notes, this is your central question. How are we, as Christians, how are we changed by our faith? How are we changed by the faith? Okay? And before we get into that, we'll come back to that. Um, I want to pause just for a second. Um, everything we're going to talk about today is, is very important, and Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ in each of our lives, the the book and the sermon are kind of aimed at Christian believers. And if you're here this morning, and that doesn't describe you, if you've never placed your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, I would really want you to pause and consider reality, Consider what's ahead, consider what happens the moment you die, because everything we're going to talk about, while important, is not near as important as your soul, and what happens afterwards to this physical body. And so, today, a lot of what we're talking about is the difference between a religion, rules, judgment, things you have to do, and a relationship, letting Jesus do it, and creating a, a, an interactive relationship with our God. They're very, very different, and accepting Jesus Christ is a a gift. It's accepting something in grace, something we don't deserve, and we accept it in faith, and that changes us, and that's what we're talking about today is the change. But if you haven't considered that, if you've not made a a decision for Jesus Christ, I didn't want to keep going without putting that out there in your heart. And afterwards today, I'll be asking some of the elders and deacons to kind of hang out up front, and if you've got questions... If you'd like to pray with somebody, if you've got anything that's on your heart and we would like to talk with you, it would be our privilege. And so afterwards today, if that's um, if whatever I'm talking about today is spurring some thinking in you, please act on it. And I don't want to move on until I've, I've said that. That's important. That's more important than anything else I'm going to say today. If you're not a believer. And back to our regularly scheduled time. In um, In faith. Chapter three. A couple cool things in here, and just a little bit of context before we get into chapter three. There's a couple terms that I want to highlight as you go through them. The first is in verse 24, and that's the word tutor. Okay, tutor's kind of a different word. It's a you'd probably, oh yeah, tutor, I know what that is. Well, we really don't because Depending on your translation, it might say put in charge, or supervisor, or supervision. It might say guardian, or if you've got a, a really obscure translation, it might say pedagogue. That one I had to look up. Um, but you've got to remember, the Apostle Paul was writing in Greek in 48 AD, and he was writing to a Greek culture, and it's not our culture. And so I want to explain what tutor is not what we think of. A tutor in Greek in 48 A.D. was a very much bigger thing than what we think of as a tutor. It was basically um, a live-in nanny who was in charge of your upbringing, who was in charge of your moral character, who was a chaperone, and who was your guardian. And if, especially for wealthier landowning families, this was very common to hire a tutor, and you were considered a child with the tutor until the father determined it was time for you to be an adult. And until you were declared an adult by the father, you had this full-time chaperone, which is kind of what this is going for. Okay? Except the guy with the gun might also have, like, books and morals and would be living with them. They'd be, it's a full-time job. Just for the record, I've never done this. Okay, I've got a very beautiful daughter, and I've, I've never gone out with the gun when the guys come over. I don't think I need to, though. They kind of know that I have a wide selection, right? Also, it's, uh, you know, I have access to heavy machinery and open ground. And, oh, yeah, the Afraid of Police Department, they kind of worked for me. So it, it comes in handy with this sort of thing. I've never had to do that. But that's the image of a tutor is that the tutor would follow the kid around all the time, teaching them morals, teaching them how to be an adult. They would live with them. They would be responsible for not just the book education, but the, the the Christian education. That was a tutor. And it was a sign if you had a tutor that you were not yet an adult. So kind of like a boarding school but it came to your house kind of idea and Paul's using the idea that the law the mosaic law was like a tutor to people who weren't christian it was like a tutor to the early church that you were enslaved to it so kind of like chains you were chained to the law the law was your guide but the the law was very restrictive it it was perfect obedience is required to the law. We'll talk about We've talked about that before, and we'll talk about it more, that you can't just follow the law pretty well. You had to follow the law completely, or else you were convicted. You were guilty. Okay? So that's a tutor. Tutor's a much broader, much bigger, more uh, formal thing that we might be used to. The second one is Error. And heir, we kind of understand a little bit in our culture. In fact, heir is pretty good. But you need to think, when you see heir in the Bible, think more in terms of less about just inheriting your family stuff, but being in a royal family, being a royal heir, meaning not just that you would inherit land and property, but you would inherit power, a position, privileges. So if you were heir to you know, the king or queen of England, that's a big deal you would keep track of that. That would be something that would influence your daily life and would deal with um, privilege, freedom, wealth, not just you know, your family's wealth and your savings account, but the wealth of nations. I mean, massive amounts of wealth, more than one person's wealth. So, tutor and heir, a little contrast there perhaps, um, which we'll be talking about more and more. Those are set the context for the passage. Our passage, I want to split into three parts, and we'll just kind of look at, you know, three verses, two verses, three verses, kind of as we go through. They kind of make for a nice, natural fit. If you're taking notes, we're going to jump right on to that. We'll start with verses 22 to 24. That song was good setup for this. Um, you're justified by faith in Jesus. Very clear, very simple teaching. Paul is just going through this very carefully to lay out some fundamentals that, The law makes you a slave, Christ sets you free. Christ came, broke the law, the law being a tutor, the law being this restrictive thing that keeps you as a child until there's no need for it. The purpose of the law, the tutor, was to show you you need a savior. The law can't be followed perfectly your whole life. There's too many laws. There's too many chances for us to mess it up. No one has except for Jesus. Therefore, the purpose of the law is to show the need for Jesus Christ, the one who could set you free. So the law, as Paul puts it, has shut you in or imprisoned you by the sin. Romans three ten. There's none righteous. No, not even one. All of us are guilty of sin. All of us were guilty with the law. Christ set us free from that. And it's just very, very simple. So before Christ came to you or came to the world, there was just, you had the belief and you had the law. And the law was to simply show that you had to believe. Okay, the, the shotgun-wielding chaperone is the tutor, is the law for you. And the law shows us how far from perfect we are. We can't do it on our own because we're we're not good enough, Romans Uh, the quote there in chapter 3, we have to be convicted that we need a Savior to be justified. Pretty quick, pretty simple. The law is chain. Christ broke us, set us free. Second section, verses 25-26. Again, pretty simple and clear as we celebrate Advent, as we look back at the first coming of Jesus Christ, that in our lives as he came, Christ set us free from the law. And because we're not perfect, Christ had to be perfect to stood on the cross for us. To accept the penalty, the only person who could do that was somebody who was perfect. Jesus followed the law perfectly. Even though he was fully man, was still fully God, obeyed the law perfectly, became a perfect sacrifice, paid our penalty. And when we talked about faith, back in verse 2, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the faith. It comes from God. We place our belief in God, but God puts the faith into us with the Holy Spirit, and that changes us, which is kind of the theme of today, is looking at, remember, we want to, how are we different because of being Christians? And Paul's kind of making what I would call a very logical argument. Before you have Christ, you have the law. The law's trying to guide you, to tell you things, and it's like your tutor. Once you have Christ, you don't need the tutor. You're set free from that. You've got Christ. He fulfilled all the law for you. So, like, if you had a nanny growing up, you wouldn't want to be a 25-year-old with a nanny, right? Christy would be very uncomfortable having me follow her around with a gun on a date. That's, that, that is awkward for everybody. It's awkward to have a, a, a tutor with you as an adult. And so Paul is saying to the Galatians you have Christ, you are Christians, you are saved, you've been justified, you're being sanctified by faith, why are you following the law? Why do you have this tutor following you around anymore? You're adults, grow up. That just doesn't make any sense. Once again, that don't make no sense that they would do that. And Paul's making the point to them, that once you're a Christian, you don't need to follow the law like that. You don't depend on the law for your salvation or for your sanctification, which is what the law is talking about here. Why follow the law for your sanctification when you depend on faith? Okay, let's take us to the last two verses, or last three. Um, This is the cool part of the whole passage. This is the part that's got the most meat on it and I think to me it's the most exciting part and it answers our central question very well. Why are we different? How are we different as Christians? And basically it comes down to three things. First off, and you can they're kind of highlighted there, we are clothed with Christ as believers. We are unified under Christ as believers. And the last one, we are heirs with Christ. Because of Christ. This is great stuff. So let's go through each one of these. Clothed with Christ. Does that mean we're wearing the same clothes as Christ? Well, like, sandals are okay, but the robes just don't go with my hair most of the time. No, we're not talking about being clothed literally with robes. It's having the same, well, actually, in Greek, the translation is Christ you have put on. Meaning, the likeness, the actions, the appearance, the thoughts are conformed to what Christ would do. That once you are justified to be sanctified, the choices you make in being sanctified are to be the same choices that Christ would follow. And day by day, your choices are more like what Jesus would choose. That's being conformed to Christ. So, being clothed is being more like Jesus Christ in our attitudes and how we talk and then again in the choices we make. Second one, all of us are one in Jesus. And this might be the most radical passage that I've seen the Apostle Paul write in terms of our culture. Um, we're all unified. We're all equal. We don't look down on anyone as Christians. And we don't look up to people as Christians. We have sometimes in America especially a uh, kind of a, a hierarchical sense of who's holy. Like we start with the pastor, pastors are super holy, and then missionaries, maybe missionaries are right up there in your pastors, and then like elders, then deacons, then ushers, and dun 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 da and then we put ourselves at the bottom, and it kind of justifies us not getting too involved, because, well, I'm just, a, I'm just a normal Christian, I'm not like a pastor. That's unchristian. Same token, as Americans, we can be pretty good about, well, they might do that thing at that church, but we don't do that at this church kind of lift ourselves up. That's very unchristian. We're all equal. This passage, you're all one in Christ Jesus, speaks to the equality we have, speaks to the mutual regard and respect we must have for one another as Christians. Think back to God's space. Most of you have gone through that or you've heard me talk about it. The first chapter of teaching in God's space was about conversation killers. About judging other people. Why was that first? Because there's nothing that will send a non-Christian out the door faster than the sense they're being judged by us. And Paul's dealing with that head on. The Galatian church was adding requirements to being a Christian that allow them to judge others. It's human nature, but it's bad. It drives people away, but it lifts up the Galatian church. They feel very good about themselves. We'll actually talk about some of that, why they do that next week. But it's a very anti-Christian. It's a very not-following-Jesus thing to lift yourself up by pushing somebody else down. And God's face dealt with that straight on. It's a wonderful reminder about all of us being equal. Um, like most of you, you know, things happen in our daily life that make us angry. Um, You get cut off by a car in traffic, somebody lets go of a shopping cart, it dings your door, whatever it is, fires you up, and you can get very judgmental about that other person. And what I've tried to do is try to think of that person who just cut me off in a God space conversation. Takes away my anger pretty fast. Doesn't lift me up as a Christian to get mad at somebody. But if I think of ourselves as being equal, that helps. We are all one in Christ. Now, if you think about, just kind of expand your mind a little bit. Get out of just little old E-Town and even America. In 2016, across the world, so worldwide, undeveloped countries, developed countries, the idea that the owner of land is equal to the worker of the land is highly radical. That the owner is on the same level as the worker in his field, that's a radical idea. The idea through most of the world that a woman has the same worth as a man is not a common belief worldwide. That's very radical. The idea that one race is equal to another race is not something that's shared worldwide in culture. That's a radical idea in 2016. How radical do you suppose it was in 48 AD? This changed. Jesus Christ goes beyond all the culture and cuts across all the garbage and talks about how equal we are before him. And Paul, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Galatians that what they're doing is separating from one another. And we're not called to do that. We're called to be in unity. Christ made us unified, and we're called in Ephesians to be diligent to maintain the unity. And that 's where this is coming from that 's where this is at that we are all made one in Jesus that should make us humble and should keep us very grateful. Third thing to be grateful about we 're heirs now this links back to Abraham back to Genesis chapter fifteen, and the first part of chapter three talks about Abraham as our ancestor because Abraham believed in God and he was Dis- uh, credited to him or reckoned to him that God determined Abraham was righteous because he believed in God. We come to God in the same way. Our faith, our belief, makes us holy in God's eyes. That's our justification. When we do that, we become heirs. We're made children of God that you, you're adopted. And the, chapter 4 is going to talk a lot about adoption and sonship and what that all means. All you need to know now is is that when you believe, you are the spiritual descendant of Abraham, your belief came through faith, and you are heirs of God. Meaning, you're part of God's family, with God's power, God's privileges, God's freedom, and God's inheritance. That's like being made a part of the king's family, except the king is the king of kings. So, all of that put together... How are you different because you're a Christian? Our central question. How are we changed by the faith? You can answer that in five basic ways. And in fact, those five ways are so important, I already wrote them on the notes for you, so you don't have to write them all over again. Okay, how are you changed by faith? You're changed in five ways. First, out of verse 25, the law has no power over you. you will con- if you are a Christian, you will not be convicted by the, the power of the law. By not observing the law. The debt for sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. You are free. Secondly, you're baptized with Christ. You are adopted. You are identified by Christ permanently. And we use the term being sealed. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is a lot to talk about. But it's a permanent thing. You are permanently identified. You are baptized with Christ. You have been permanently stamped With God's image. Third. You are unified. And indeed in unity. With all Christians. Not just here at Grace Point. Not just here in Ephrata. Not just in blah 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 blah. Throughout the entire world. And throughout all time. And you'll hear me talk at the big holidays. I get very excited by the fact that when we worship right now. Worship is going on all over the world. Or it went on all over the world. And that it went on in Asia earlier this morning. And it came around and now we're kind of finishing up. And it's going to, whatever, out in uh, the Pacific Ocean somewhere. There'll be worship on an island. They'll kind of finish up the day. But we are all unified. We're all in unity with Jesus. Fourth one is we have an ancestry that goes back to Abraham. We have a connection with Abraham because Abraham believed in faith and was saved. We believe in faith. And we're saved. And that connects us to this grand story of all, of all of human history is kind of about saving us from our own sin nature. That's the point of what's going on around us. But We have this connection to, to the father of Israel. And it unites the Old and the New Testament through that, through faith, through belief. And the last one is the one that kind of, it's the, kind of the motivation, the target, the goal, that we're royalty. We have been adopted into the king of kings family. We are family with God, and we are inheritance of God's promise, of God's blessing, of God's riches, because we're heirs. That's the promise God makes to us. When you place your faith in him, and you place your trust in him, and God, through Jesus Christ, saves you in your justification, that's what we get, and that's a lot. Jesus Christ takes us from being enslaved to being exalted. Frederick Douglass did that in a physical way, in a political way, if you will. Was born a slave, became exalted. We do it in a very, very big, very, very permanent, very, very eternal way, that we were born under slavery as sinners. The law convicting us, whether you were age five or age 55, you were born into slavery. And when you accept Jesus Christ, you are made an heir, you are exalted, you are lifted up. So, take away. Nice little story about Frederick Douglass. We have this great passage, and what does it all mean? And I, as I try to always tell you, when I talked about what do I take away, the application part of verse, because we don't read, we don't preach, we don't teach in this church just to be smart. It's about the Holy Spirit going each side of each one of you, changing your heart and leaving here a little differently than you came in. For me, as I've had to struggle with this, I will share what, has been done in my life. One flawed person's ideas of how to take away. You need to wrestle with that yourself. I'm offering you what I've learned just to spur conversation in your head. But it's the same application that I talked about last week. And it's the two-part thing of what do we need or what do I need? And that's I need motivation and I need encouragement sometimes. Because sanctification, I think, is pretty hard. I don't think it's easy the Christian life—it's a struggle sometimes. It's a wonderful thing, but often it's a, a bit of a struggle. How do we apply this? And I'll start with the motivation and the encouragement. My my image for all this, illustration for all this, is hiking. I'll start with this. When I go hiking, whether it's after church, go up Beasley, or like um, at Glacier National Park or anywhere else, sometimes this is what the trail looks like. It's dark. It's kind of boring. There's not a good view, and if you're going uphill. It's not very easy. I'm not part mountain goat like somebody else in our congregation where that's just they love going up the hills and it's easy for them. I get tired. And what do I use for motivation? What I use is when I I know I want to stay motivated, I want to keep putting one foot in front of the other because this is only part of the journey and I want to get to this. I want to come out of the woods and see this magnificent vista with a hidden lake and snow in July and make a snowball. And The goal is motivating for me. Christian life can be like that in that it's not always easy on a day-to-day basis. But You keep the goal in mind that we'll be like Jesus Christ. We will be slowly conformed, and that can be very, very motivating. Even if the goal is a long ways away, It's about step-by-step, day-by-day, keeping the crown in the back of my mind. Or maybe it's not the big vista. Maybe it's a hidden secret on your way up the path. You run across these little waterfalls, this little moment of beauty, a little moment of transits where you have a a conversation with somebody, how awesome that is. And for me, that's what the Christian life is like. When I'm hiking, it reminds me a lot of what this is like, that it's not always easy, and it sometimes is long, but there's a goal at the end of it, and the goal is, is motivating. Now, on the other side of it is sometimes that journey is really, really hard, especially if it's a steep trail, and what trails are rarely from the bottom to the top in a straight line, because that would kill you, except for Keevan. Keevan can do that. The rest of us, what they do is the trails go like this. They switch back. And when you're on these switchbacks, especially if you're in the woods, you can't see the goal. You're just having this hard thing of going up, step by step, by step, by step. And you know you're not even going in the right direction. I've been on trails where, like, you're going from here to here, but you go like this. Like, you literally go in the opposite direction because it's too steep otherwise. You have to go around something. That can feel like you're going the wrong way. Because, theoretically, you sort of are going the wrong way. And what you do, or what I do on those battles, when I'm dealing with sanctification, is I stop, and I look backwards. I kind of forget about the goal, and I look back at where I came from. And there's a lot of distance between where we came from. And that makes me feel good. And I talked about last week, in rehab, if you blow your knee apart, you have to go through rehab, they film you the first day of rehab, because you'll get frustrated later on. You're not quite using your knee right. You've got to look back at how far have you come. As a church, our ongoing process, we're a very different church than we were 20 years ago. And there's sometimes I get frustrated. We're not where I think we should be or we're not where God has called us to be and we're not doing the things. Sometimes I just need to stop and relax and look back down the trail and look back where the car's parked, metaphorically speaking, and look back and say, wow, we've actually come a long ways. And that's encouragement. So for me, when I deal with, how are we doing with sanctification? It's one part, keep my eyes on the coal and be motivated by the fact that God's at work, God has a plan, and there's this, there's this crown waiting for me. And on one part of this, i got to look back every now and then when I get a little frustrated and still be encouraged that it's not static. Okay, God might be quiet, but he's not static. Our life is one of progression. It's not a straight line up. It goes up and down, and it goes up and down, and it sometimes goes backwards a ways. But the overall should be one of going from not knowing Jesus very well to knowing Jesus much better, or not knowing one another real well and getting to know one another better. That, for me, is the motivation and the encouragement about living this Christian life, about those five things that were different because of what Jesus has done for us. As a Christian, We're not the same person we were before, and we live, we walk in faith in the sanctification time with those five principles in mind. And that's the end of chapter 3. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you this morning for our ability just to be before you, to have a building we can uh, enjoy, we can hear your word in our own language, we have your word written for us in our own language, and we thank you for these blessings. Father, we thank you for all the men and women that even now are out at work in the military and the emergency services that are not able to be here, uh, not able to be in their churches or anywhere, but Father, they're serving us and protecting us. We thank you for those that have gone before us here at Grace Point that established this church here in the 1940s and that day by day have trained men and women in the faith and that we are the recipients of what's gone on before us, Father, and we thank you for that. This morning, I pray that your holy word would just be implanted in each one of our hearts and that, Lord, we would leave here closer to you and closer to one another than we were when we came in. And now as we uh, transition from a time of your instruction by your spirit in each one of us to a time of us worshiping you, Father, I pray that our worship this morning be in spirit and in truth and would be a response to what you've done in each one of our lives and a response to what you've taught us this morning. In this we pray in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Amen. Well, really, this song is kind of a bow of celebration on everything you just talked about.